And this morning, I want to talk about how the church can change the world, how the church can change the world. You know, in the past 21 years, organized religion has gotten a very bad rap in our society. I'm sure you've heard about this, you've read about this in newspapers and heard about this in the news. Organized religion, it would seem, is on the decline. We've heard arguments that uh, Christians are hypocrites and they never practice what they preach. We've heard arguments that uh, Christians don't flex with the times and they continue to hold views that are maybe politically incorrect. We've heard uh, statistics from organizations like Pew Research that, that Christianity is declining within our culture. And if all that you knew about the Christian faith in America was what you heard on cable news or read in, in the media, you'd think the future of the church was very bleak. I just am here to tell you, this is most definitely not the case. Jesus said, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is in the business of building his church. And I don't care what happens over the past 2,000 years or in the coming 2,000 years, if that's the amount of time before Jesus comes back, Jesus will always be about the process of building his church. For instance, you may have heard about this recent study in Harvard University. Uh, this was a Harvard University, Indiana University joint project. This appeared in the, <clears throat> the journal called Sociological Science. The title was The Persistent and Exceptional Intensity of American Religion, a Response to Recent Research. So the recent research was how we think it's declining. And Harvard and Indiana University said, let's rethink that. Let's look at the numbers that they looked at and let's rethink that. So here's one of the authors, Landon Schnabel, who looks really young to me, uh, you know, like he's a PhD at Indiana University. Um, maybe that was his high school graduation picture, I don't know. <laughs> in our study, we show that rather than religion fading into irrelevance, Intense religion, meaning strong affiliation, very frequent practice, literalism and evangelicalism is persistent, and in fact, only moderate religion is on the decline in the United States. And then on page 671, they assert that evangelicalism grew significantly from 1972 to 2016. Now, it's interesting because this article was picked up by a number of different publications and they dug into the details, and there are some amazing statements in this uh, peer-reviewed academic journal article. So uh, it seems as if um, what's really going on is that there is a rise, not among moderate religion or denominational Christianity, but a rise in evangelical Christianity within the United States of America. One of the reasons is because of the exceptional levels of service that takes place uh, by churches. So uh, <clears throat> these guys all basically are in agreement. Uh, anyway, Georgetown University study. This, this study said religion is worth $1.2 trillion in the U.S. economy, more than Google and Apple combined. Now here's, here's what they did. What they said, that this, this would include the fair market value of goods and services provided by religious organizations, 
along with contributions given by businesses and institutions to provide those services, and that amounts to more than $1.2 trillion. So let me, let, me, let me net it out for you. If, if they're right, and they've got some great research behind this, if you take away the local church out of society, the state gets devastated. If the church is taken out of society, the state gets devastated because the church is providing so much in terms of tangible goods and services that gets poured into our society. So that leads me to the conclusion that the church, rather than becoming less relevant, is becoming more relevant. And that's why I think we need to remember the, the value of the local church. The local church is a great place with which to affiliate, because when the local church is at its best, the local church is changing the indigenous society in which it's located. A church in Beijing is in a neighborhood, and it's changing that neighborhood. A church in Singapore is in a neighborhood, it's changing that neighborhood. A church in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, is in a city, a neighborhood in that city, and it's doing things that will change the face of that city. Being involved in a local church is a good thing. And we're going to see that in 1 Peter 1.22 through 2.10. I need to give you some background. Uh, I started the first week by saying that there's a, the big idea to the book. The big idea is that you have an identity as a follower of Jesus. Your identity is that you are a resident alien under God's eternal care endowed with power. You're a resident alien under God's eternal care, and you are endowed with a tremendous amount of power. What Peter does is he applies that idea in six concentric spheres within the book of 1 Peter. And this morning what he's going to do is he's going to apply it to believers, to believers who are in a local church. Now, to study this, what we have to do is remember that Peter always builds up to a climax. And this morning what he does is, in this passage, is he gives us three disciplines that allows a local church to encounter transfer, transformation. The first discipline is in verses 22 through 25 of chapter 1. The second is in 2, 1 through 3. The third is in 2, 4 through 8. And then he gets to the payoff, which is the, the role of the church in society. So we're going to look at it from the, from the end and then go back to the beginning. So I'm going to start at the end to the purpose of the church within society, which is to experience and express transformation. And here's how Peter puts it. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the first thing we see is the purpose uh, from verses 9 and 10. The purpose of every local church is to encounter transformation and to tell others about it. That's a pretty simple purpose. Our purpose is to encounter, experience, to be transformed. And then having been transformed, then we... We talk about it. We tell stories about what that has meant for us in our life. That, that is the core purpose of a local church. It's, 
a cross-centered purpose because our transformation comes through Jesus Christ. But having been transformed, we start telling people about what it is that we have encountered. I want you to know, uh, notice how, how this begins. It begins with the words, but you, but you. This is in the plural. So here in the, in the South, we use the word you all, or if you, if you want to like make it contract, it's y'all. Or if you want to emphasize it, it's all y'all. I want, I want all y'all to do this, that, and the other thing. He's, he's using that plural you right there and what he's doing is he's talking about believers in these areas of Lydia, Mysia, Bithynia. He's addressed them at the beginning of the book. He's addressing them in their indigenous locations. And that means, as we apply this to us, we apply this to our indigenous location, and, and that is Grace Community Church. So we, got, we apply this specifically to our church. What does God want us to do here to encounter transformation and then to tell others about it. We have to embrace our identity. So he gives us a fourfold identity. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. What does that mean? Let's just pick them apart point by point. A chosen race means that we are descendants of a common lineage, mainly Jesus. Our Abba Father planned for our salvation. Jesus the Son, our elder brother, paid the penalty for our salvation. Now we are invited into a new race. Just like Israel became a new race with the calling of Abraham and with the Exodus, we who follow Jesus are a new race. The source of our lineage is the resurrected Christ. We're related to him. He is our elder brother. Abba, Father, is the one whom we call as our, as our God. And so a chosen race means that we possess a new identity, a new culture, part of a new family. Now, when we think about race, we think about ethnicity, right? And that word race is a big deal in our culture. The word racism gets thrown about a lot in our culture. Jesus is the great unifier of ethnicities because once a person comes to Christ, there is a spiritual union between that person and every other ethnicity around the globe. This becomes, this becomes the race that flows from Jesus and his resurrection. Chosen race, royal priesthood. This is an amazing concept. A priest is a mediator between God and humans, right? So when we become a body of Christ, we become conduits of God's kingdom power. Think about that. You know, we, we come to a church like this this morning and we're all seated here. What are we? Well, from God's standpoint, we are conduits of God's kingdom power. There's something supernatural that ought to happen, that does happen when the body of Christ gathers in genuine worship 
of the resurrected Christ. We're conduits of God's kingdom power. Then this third part of the identity is holy nation. Holy nation means that we're set apart for new citizenship. We talked about that two weeks ago. All of us here, most of us here, probably citizens of the United States of America, and we're glad to be citizens of this country. There's a lot of privileges that we enjoy being here. However, in Christ, we have a new citizenship, and that citizenship is that we're citizens of heaven. And so we enjoy an identity that transcends the grave. Yeah, I keep hearing about people who, who buy coffins that have certain identities on them. And the big thing, you know, is like I can buy a coffin that has OU on the cover. I can buy one that has K-State in the cover. I can buy one, uh, who knows, maybe, maybe you can have one that says Harley Davidson on. I, I, I don't know. But people have these identities that they're putting on coffins. You have an identity that transcends the grave, and that is you are, you are a citizen of heaven, and you have an eternal residence in that place. And then uh, we're God's own possession, meaning that we were purchased for a new master. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, one of the things he did was he paid a ransom price. That price was expressed in his shed blood. And so we were literally purchased for God by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're owned by another. Now that's the identity of a local church when it is gathered. Whether you're gathered in, in a group of two at the local coffee shop, or you're gathered as a group of 12 in a small group, or whether you're gathered in, in a group of a, several hundred like this morning, whenever we're gathered, we enjoy that fourfold identity. But here's, here's the key to it. The key to it, the gathered church is a conduit of God's life, His presence, His power. You know, one of the reasons why these sociologists said that there was a decline in traditional, um, moderate, denominational Christianity was because they, they said there's, there's not the sense of power that's present there. It's giving lip service to certain truths, but there's no supernatural dynamic that's at the root of it. God designed the church not, not to be like a, a social club, you know, the local 4-H club or the Rotary Aquinas, all of which are great organizations. He designed the church to be a conduit of his life, his presence, and his supernatural power. So we have an identity. But what, what do we do with that identity? Do we, do we hoard that identity? What, what do we do with it? Well, the answer that Peter gives to us is that we tell stories. Verse 9. We are this identity so that we might proclaim the excellencies. Love that word. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if, if we're the gathered body of Christ, what we do is we, we learn to tell stories about our transformation. So I want you to think about how a storyline goes. Our transformation stories always have three parts. He says that here. Part one is our darkness. How many of you uh, can remember a time when it was dark for you in your life? It was hard for you, both as a, as a non-believer and then as a believer. 
You went through times of darkness as a believer. Because in spiritual growth, it's not instant. Spiritual growth takes time. Sometimes in order for us to grow, the darkness has to be exposed so we can bring the darkness into the light. But how many of you could say, yes, I know what it's like to encounter darkness and brokenness and tears and sorrow and just bone-crushing sadness. You know that. Well, story, transformation stories begin right there with that time in the darkness. A lot of times in churches, what pe people will do is they will they'll deny the darkness. I'm a Christian. I'm fine. No problem with me. I have no problems. That's wrong. That's wrong. Because we tell transformation stories that must begin with the darkness. And then you describe your encounter with light. And your encounter with light may be the time you came to Christ, or it may be the time that as a Christian, you encountered the Holy Spirit for the first time, or the 100th time. And you realize that the Spirit's power was sufficient to bring you from that place of darkness to that place of light. And then in the story, you talk about your growth in the light. Because walking in the light is, is not a one-time event. It is a walk, which by nature means that it takes time. And so that's the form that our stories take. We had a time in the darkness. We encountered the light. Now we're talking about our growth in the light. The role of the gathered church is to seize their identity, to be a conduit of God's life, presence, and power, and then to begin to tell, to tell stories about that identity. What is, what is that like? So, <clears throat> so I want you to think then about, maybe we can pull some of these, some of these ideas together. What does it mean to tell stories about our transformation? First, it means we talk about how we came to Christ. We tell our salvation story. We tell the story about how we wrestled with the gospel, how we heard the gospel, how we received Christ, how we grew in Christ. Or it's about our growth in Christ, how we, we came to Christ, we had a habit we could not control. And God brought us into that light and showed us how we might grow. That's one aspect of telling our stories. There's another aspect of telling the story, and that is that you rehearse that story to God in worship. Because one of the ways that you worship is you say, God, here's where I was. Here's where I am now. I praise you that you are good to me, that you are powerful on my behalf. One story is a horizontal story that addresses people. The other story is a vertical story that addresses God. So telling stories is telling stories about both our salvation toward other people and telling the story to God in a form of worship. Here's, here's an aspect of, of storytelling that, that mirrors what I'm talking about. I was with a friend recently, and we were talking about the upcoming Paul McCartney concert. It may have already happened. I think it was in Chicago. And he was going to travel up to Chicago to hear the concert. So for about five minutes, both he and I are talking about our respective experiences at a Paul McCartney concert. Mine was about seven years ago at the BOK. 
And we're talking about how people felt when he started to sing Hey Jude. We're talking about the fact that he got into yesterday at one of the, one of the encores. We're talking about this for five minutes, telling stories about our experiences with Paul McCartney and his concert. And then he said to me, don't you wish you were going? That's what he said to me. He, was, he wasn't like inviting me to come along, but he sort of was. Don't you wish you were coming? Well, that, that, that's like, that's like what I'm talking about. You know, you, you talk about what Jesus has been doing in your life and the transformative changes he's been making. And then you invite people into that experience. That's what the church is called to do. Experience transformation and then express it outwardly to people as a way of encouraging them or expressing it upwardly toward God as a way of being involved in worship. I need to add a component. This is a really, a really important component. Um, and that, that component is a God-centered optimism. Think back to the idea of called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That word marvelous is not like he called us out of darkness into his okay light, out of darkness into his moderately cool light. It's no, called out of darkness into his amazing light. And so the idea is that as we tell our stories, we learn to tell them with an authentic, God-centered optimism that focuses in on how big God is and how good he is and how gracious he is. Learning how to tell that story with God-centered optimism, I think, takes a little bit of work because you can, you can be a sort of a prideful person and tell your optimistic story in a prideful way. You can be a shame-based person and downplay your story because you don't want to be too verbal about it. But when, you're, when you have a God-centered optimism, you're focusing on the bigness of God in the midst of your quirky, zigzag, sometimes awkward story. So that raises the question, how does a church start doing this? How does a small group start doing this? How do a group of friends who are being discipled in groups of twos and threes start doing this? How, how does this happen? Well, Peter now gives us the discipline. So remember how this passage is structured. He ends with the purpose, that is to experience and express transformation. And he gives three disciplines that lead up to that purpose. And the first discipline uh, is the first part of the process of living out this culture is love. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. If you want to be a person who uh, experiences and expresses transformation, you've got to be a person who starts with, with proactive, proactive love. Um, this love that he refers to is agape love. You're familiar with that Greek word. It's the highest form of love. It's action love. It wills the best for the person who is loved. But here's the thing about agape love. It's an action before it's a feeling. It's an action before it's a feeling. So last year, 
Last summer, my son came to me. He said, Dad, would you please take our dog for a year? You've heard me tell the story. Here's the update. I said, no. He asked me a second time. Dad, what do you think? No. He asked me the third time, and the way he asked it the third time, I felt convicted by God that I had to say yes. <laughs> so I said yes. And Cindy will confirm this. She's not here first service. She'll be here second service. She got back from Celebrate Recovery one Monday night, and I had been driven crazy by this dog. I said, this is the biggest mistake we have ever made. I will never have a dog again. I am done with dogs, period. No more dogs. That went over real well. <laughs> but here's the problem. I'd, I'd already made a decision to accept this dog for a year. And I ramped up some serious grit. And I said, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to deliver back to my son a better dog than I received. I don't care what it takes. And some of you know that I, I, purchased, I purchased the course by Mike Ritland, the Navy SEAL, who trains Navy SEAL dogs. And I, I, I took that course, and I, I looked at those videos over and over and over again. And I just said, all right, Rod, you're going you're gonna to love this dog for your son and your daughter-in-law's sake. And you're going to give back a better dog than you, than you received. Okay, so fast forward to four nights ago. Four nights ago. Four nights ago, I'm up in the bedroom, and Watson, who now, I now affectionately call Waddy, <laughs> I, I, I started talking to him in my dog voice. How many of you have dog voices? I was talking to him in my dog voice. And I said, oh, Waddy, I'm so sad that you're going to be going, going soon because Caleb's going to come and pick you up. And I'm going to miss you so much. I'm going on and on like this. Cindy walks into the room, and she hears me. <laughs> she thinks, what has happened to my husband? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Here's what happened. I determined out of agape love that I would deliver a better dog to my son than I received. I didn't do it the dog, for the dog's sake, although now I do. I did it for his sake. My feelings for the dog started as a choice. And in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, emotions follow choice. Emotions follow choice. And that's why what happens some, sometimes is that you get into the body of Christ and, and by nature, God has designed it to be diverse. By nature. So somebody comes into a church setting and they have piercings and tattoos and you like bow ties and crew cuts. That's different. You're called to love the people that you are in fellowship with. Somebody likes Mozart in the body of Christ and somebody else likes hip-hop. Okay, people are different. And sometimes differentness rubs you the wrong way. So what do you do? You say, I'm leaving this church. I hate Mozart, like hip-hop. I'm going someplace else. Or I hate bow ties and crew cuts. I'm leaving this church. I'm going someplace else. No, what you do is you ramp up agape love, which says, I'm committed to showing Christ-like love whether I feel it or not. That's what he means 
when he talks about love fervently, love one another from the heart. When we think from the heart, we think it's, it's like from our emotions. In the Bible, from the heart means as a matter of choice. The heart is the seat of choice in the Bible. You fervently love people because you make a choice that. So some of you might say, I can't do that. That's not me. That's not how I work. It is you, because Peter says, you've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Peter's saying, you got a new nature. You've been regenerated, and the Word of God is like a seed. And so when the seed of the Word gets into your regenerated heart, you have the power to do what you formerly didn't think you had the power to do. Imagine I got a watermelon seed up here. I love watermelon in the summertime. And I say to this watermelon seed, you are going to become a melon. And the watermelon seed says, are you kidding me? That's just not me. That's just not me. I got this hard shell and this green stuff inside. That's not me. And I said, but it is you. <laughs> because when you get into the fertile soil in the ground, you germinate and sprout, and you will become a melon. That's you. You might say, I, I can't love, and you can't love in your own strength, but you've been born again. You have this regenerate nature, and when the, God's Word gets into your regenerate nature, you have the power to love people fervently from the heart. So what does this mean at grace? Let me tell you the minimal thing that it means at grace. This is not minimal, but it, this is like the entry-level thing it means at grace. It means that when you come to grace on a Sunday morning, you are a conduit of hospitality. Now, why, now why do I say that's the, that's the entry level? Because the triune God is the most hospitable being in the universe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invite sinners into their presence. Redeem sinners into their presence. That's hospitality. That's hospitality. So when we are the gathered body of Christ on Sunday morning, Grace Community Church, what should we be? We should be the epitome of hospitality. That means we smile. That means we ask genuinely, how are you doing? That means if we see somebody who might be struggling, we ask them about it. Loving people from the heart fervently begins with hospitality because that's the way God is. God is an hospitable God. He invited me into his presence and you. That means God is really hospitable. And how can we do anything less as the body of Christ at Grace Community Church? We start with hospitality. That's one of the ways you fervently love people from the heart as the gathered body of Christ. So I was with, I was with two friends on Saturday, and uh, one of the things they were saying is, what I love about Grace Community Church is, is people love each other there. I said, thanks for saying that. Thanks, thanks for observing that. May we excel still more. So then we, we move to this second discipline. We go from um, love to the word, verses, verse 2, 1 through 3. Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed or it could be translated, since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's only one verb in this statement. It's the verb to long for. It's the verb 
to desire intensely, and we're to long for the pure milk of the Word. And he gives us a very vivid illustration, and the illustration is like an infant hungering for mom's milk. So any of you who are parents know what that was like. Little infant is born, and that little infant gets fussy. And what does the mom immediately know? He's hungry. And that fussy little hungry baby, if you wait too long, that fussy baby cries, and then that fussy baby screams. And if there's still no more milk, the fussy baby screams like crazy because they long for what only mom can give, which is, which is milk. And once that milk comes, what happens to the baby? They're satisfied and they fall asleep. Peter commands us to cultivate a desire for the Word, for God's Word. However, there's a difference um, with God's Word and, and, um, and, and, and baby's milk in the sense that we're adults. And so we have to cultivate that desire. That's the command. The command is to long for it. So I think about me in high school. When I went on a mission trip one time in high school, I noticed that all of, I was a, I was a freshman, all the seniors and the really cool seniors were drinking black coffee out of a styrofoam cup. So I thought, okay, if I want to be cool, I have to drink black coffee out of a styrofoam cup. So I went to the coffee maker, poured the coffee, took my first sip, and had the most awkward look on my face ever, which all the seniors saw. So th that was really uncool. But by the end of the week, I, I, I had my sort of taste for coffee. Now I love it. The darker and stronger the roast, the better. It was a cultivated taste. So what Peter is saying is cultivate a taste for the word such that it becomes a consuming desire in your life. How do you cultivate the taste for the Word? He tells us. He tells us. Since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what I, what I do to cultivate a taste for the Word is I, I say, God, you, you've been good to me in this way, this way, this way. I rehearse my gratitude toward God, and I realize what God has done. He's transformed my life by the application of the Word to my experience. I rehearse His goodness to me. And that builds in me a taste for God's transforming word. What does this mean for Grace Community Church? Well, our commitment at Grace is to go deep into God's word so that hopefully you will go deep as well. So each, each July, I will plan out the following year. Um, and I'll, I'll be somewhat flexible with it, but it's pretty well planned out for the entire year. And what I want to do is I want to go from an Old Testament book to a New Testament book to a topical study. And I want to weave other people into the teaching. Uh, you know, Josh has been with us for six or seven years as our associate teaching pastor. He teaches once a month. Or if I'm away on vacation, sometimes he teaches twice in a row, which I've really appreciated this year. I love it when Josh teaches because I get to sit under great teaching and I get a week where I can be more focused on leadership at Grace that week. It's fantastic for me. We want to go deep in God's Word because we want you to encounter depth in God's Word. And, and not just know phrases, but really dig your teeth into something that is transformative. Here's the third cultural component. 
And that third cultural component is worship. We go from love to God's Word to worship. And coming to Him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. He's using Old Testament terminology to describe New Testament worship. You're being built up corporately as the body of Christ to be a people who learn, who learn to, to worship. And then he says this, for this is con contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious co cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, I love the way, the way Peter, Peter puts this because Peter, in this phrase, uses the extreme negative to mean the extreme positive. You know, not be put to shame sounds, okay, that sounds like sort of negative, but it's a figure of speech. What he's doing is using the extreme negative to mean the extreme positive, common Greek figure of speech. So the idea there is that I am released from shame. Like my shame is released by the cross. My, my I need to get a Kleenex, so I'm gonna kneel down here to get a Kleenex. I'm released from shame. And not just a little bit, like, like I'm radically released from shame. And what does that do for my worship? That means my worship is exuberant and heartfelt because God has transformed my life. Therefore, I lift my hands in praise to Him, thanking Him for the great things that He's done in, in my life. So worship is a key, a key part of, of, what, of what we do. Let me give you an example. Um, this year, Cindy and I celebrated two big milestones. We celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. Big milestone. And we celebrated her working at Grace for 20 years. Another big milestone. So during that time, I often would express my gratitude towards Cindy. And one thing really hit me, the thing that really hit me was the fact that Cindy had really seized on the vision of 2 Timothy 2.2 about equipping people. I just expressed my gratitude to her for that. So part of, part of I'm not worshiping Cindy, but part, part of honoring her is recognizing the good things that she's meant for me and our family and our church. Honoring God is that same idea, that I honor Him for the good things that He's done in my life, in the life of my family, in the life of my job, and so on. Worship is a, is a key component of how you become a church that is transformed. So let's put this together. Main idea of these verses the kind of church that changes the world is a church that experiences transformation. We're talking continuous transformation. We're talking not just the transformation of salvation, but the transformation of serious spiritual growth. And then we tell our transformation stories to God in worship and to friends who will listen. This is very similar to Acts 1.8. And this is the Acts 1.8. You will receive power. What is that? That's, that's transformation. You will be my witnesses. What is that? That's telling people about what it is that we have experienced. And then he says where we're going to share these things. It's going to be Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, we tell a transformation story widely and broadly. 
as people who have become exuberant about the changes that God has made in our lives. So one more time, becoming a church that changes the world means we love people, we long for the word, we lift up our hearts in worship, and we tell our transformation stories. Now for some takeaways. How, do, how are we going to apply this at Grace? Please understand our heart at Grace. We have chosen one word to define all that we do, and that one word is transformation. I use this verse a lot, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being continuously transformed. Our transformation comes through the cross. It comes through the work that Jesus did. Our heart is transformation. So what we hope as leaders at Grace is that your heart would also be for transformation. And remember what I'm, what I'm always saying, transformation is not just a single event. It's a process. Sometimes it's a messy process. Sometimes it's a process that's fraught with pain and heartache. Sometimes it's a process that's fraught with having to work through relational difficulties. It's a process. Our vision is transformation. Our hope is that you would say, I'm in. I want to encounter that continuous transformation as well. Second takeaway is this. See the eternal value of weekly participation at grace, and not just in our, our worship service, but also in the various ministries that we have 